Hello, and welcome to Rewind, a podcast by Resolve. Resolve is a youth-led social enterprise that spotlights the climate crisis and builds climate action communities in South Asia. I am your host, Ronak Mainali, and this podcast, Rewind, is a documentation of my journey learning about the climate crisis through quick and casual conversations with experts, activists, entrepreneurs, and everyone else making a difference in this space. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Rewind podcast. Uh, and in today's episode, we will be discussing the IPCC report that came just about two weeks ago. Uh, it is a very long report. It's about uh, 4,000 words, and I think think 13 chapters. And if you're involved in the climate space, uh, or even if you're not, you should have probably heard about it on social media and the news. And uh, discussing the report with us today is uh, Lou Delbello. Uh, Lou is currently a special projects editor at the third poll, and she was previously an environment correspondent for Bloomberg. Uh, she has written in the past for the BBC, The Telegraph, Nature News and more. Uh, last year, she also won the UK Freelance Writing Awards for Science and Health and recently, she has started an environmental newsletter in India called uh, Lights On, which you can view from uh, lightson.news. Hello, Lou. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, okay, so let's begin by talking about the IPCC report, or as it's being called in the media, the Code Red report, which I believe is because of the urgency uh, it conveys. Uh, before we get into any of the technicalities, uh, what were your key takeaways from the report? I guess for me, um, the key takeaway this year is, you know, this new iteration of the IPCC report wasn't that different from what we already knew. Um, but I guess the key takeaway um, is that whatever we do now, some changes and some local changes to the planet are already locked in. So there isn't much that we can do to avoid some immediate impacts. And um, yeah, some people found these are very disheartening messages, message, and um, they felt, well, you know, it's too late, nothing we can do. But actually, the report itself says that if we manage, if the you know governments together manage to slash emissions fast enough, something can be done and the damages can be greatly reduced. Um, by the end of the century. Um, but basically, under all the IPCC scenarios, which are in, you know, the projections that we try to see um, produces, um, the Earth will, um, in all cases, warm by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius um, compared to pre-industrial times. Um, obviously, in a best case scenario, this can be brought down slightly. Um, so that's a very, you know, it's a very good message that we can take from the report. But you know, it's it's kind of a tale of two um, of two extremes. Um, so some some damage is already done, um, but also I think the fact that we have this damage locked in um, really pushes for action to limit this damage. I mean, what you brought up there was quite interesting about the fact that there's nothing really new in this report. Uh, so, I mean, it's stuff that has obviously been highlighted by scientists before, by uh, people involved in the climate space before. So there's nothing really surprising about it. Uh, but there is like this sense of urgency. There's a, 
different way that they've uh, worded the report. There's been stronger language used in the report. Uh, I think, again, as a means to communicate the urgency of the problem. And this has been uh, criticized by climate deniers who are trying to discredit the report, saying that it's meant to scare governments. Uh, as an editor yourself, how important do you think is the role of language in communications? Um, I would say the role of language is super important, and in this case, even more so, because, um, for example, this report, a summary of this report, which comes out uh, to the media just a few days before uh, the main text, um, is a text that's been agreed by all government, including governments that uh, rely a lot on fossil fuels. And um, you might be surprised to learn that this um, this version of the text that is, you know, contains some strong language was actually torn down a lot um, to bring consensus among all these um, countries. So, for example, if you go through the text, you will find there is no mention of fossil fuels and very few um, mentions of the world energy. Um, and this has been because during the negotiations, some countries have pushed to dilute this language, to not make it too drastic. So what we have now is already quite a stark message, but it could have been even um, even more damning if um, scientists have had their, had their way. So, you know, this gives you an idea of how political language becomes in this context. And this doesn't apply only, um, it doesn't apply only to scientific texts, but applies also uh, to the ways we discuss climate change, for example, climate migrants versus climate refugees. This is a conversation that we're having at the third poll. How are we gonna call the people who are displaced because of climate change? Many governments don't want to talk about refugees because that um, brings a lot of implication on, you know, we have a duty, a legal duty to take the migrants in and governments don't want to take that responsibility. Um, so they prefer to call them migrants. But on the other hand, if you call them migrants, you suggest that they are just leaving because they want to, like, re-migrate somewhere else in search of a better job, for example, and that's not the case. So as you can see, there are, like, the climate conversation is really peppered with these instances of, you know, language and linguistic conflict um, that carry a deeper meaning and, um, you know, eventually will shape the way, as a global community, we respond to climate change. I mean, of course, the uh, report itself was uh, a collaboration of different scientists and eventually uh, 195 countries agreed on it. So there's obviously going to be a lot going on during negotiations. Countries are going to change the language to suit their agendas. So, yeah, I mean, that's where we can see sort of a watered down version of uh, watered down version of the actual document. Uh, but something that I believe they didn't really water down is the uh, is the urgency of having to reduce emissions and uh, the effect it has on the environment. So specifically, uh, the thing that stood out to me the most is the rise in temperature, which was mentioned all over social media. So the report states that right now we're already 1.1 degree above uh, pre-industrial levels. And if we and we're likely to reach around 1.5 degrees uh, by the 2030s and if significant action isn't taken soon uh, two degrees might be inevitable uh, what kind of changes can we expect to see in south asia as the global average temperature increases even further because 
as far as I've seen in Nepal, I've already seen this year from my own eyes a rise in rainfall, which of course has brought out landslides and flooding. And also there is a worrying lack of snow in the mountains. What else can we see in South Asia with the rise in temperature? Um, yes, the examples that you, that you brought are very, you know, one of the main examples and they're having um, very big consequences on people already. Um, I guess another thing that is not, um, is having already, you know, crazy impacts, but has not been, I think, identified by the general public as much because it's quite a complex dynamic. It's dangerous having a very, uh, very warm sea. Uh, the Arabian Sea and in the um, east coast of India as well, uh, the sea is warming at a much higher rate than the global average. And that means it becomes um, the perfect breeding ground for extreme weather like um, cyclones and typhoons. You will, you will see much more um, extreme storms. And uh, because the sea uh, level will be rising as well, these storms will park themselves more and more, increasingly more often, um, near the coast. And so when they make landfall on Earth, they do it um, with much higher balance and they're much more destructive. So this is something that scientists have really worried about. And, you know, it's already happening. It's happened uh, without fun, for example. Um, and it's going to be happening more and more. Um, and other aspects of... Um, these super powerful cyclones is that they become so fast, they accelerate so fast thanks to um, these warm waters that feed them that meteorologists will struggle more and more to predict their direction. So, for example, if we have a cyclone that goes near the Mumbai area where you know tens of millions of people live, it's so important that scientists are able to predict where it's going to hit the coast. And if you can do that, um, you know, you risk um, higher uh, loss of lives and loss of infrastructure. Um, so, yeah, this is one of, the, one of the big dangers. And many scientists are really calling for redesigning communities that might be at risk before the disaster occurs. So India, for example, become really good at you know, preparing for these disasters. Let's say in the Bay of Bengal, for example, is a great example previous cyclones to kill a lot of people, um, whereas now there are barely any casualties, which is great. But what happens in the meantime is that houses, fields, um, livestock, it's all destroyed. So when people go back to their homes, there's nothing left for them. So many scientists are now saying, we know these things will happen more and more, and there's no way to stop them. So we should probably maybe relocate the communities before these events occur, or create relevant infrastructure, power lines, um, clean energy infrastructure, or any other key buildings, we should put them somewhere that is out of reach for these extreme storms. So yeah, it's been a, it's a conversation that is already underway, um, but I think this report highlighted it even more. Um, and I found that particular aspect very scary for South Asia. I mean, another effect of climate change that you wrote about, uh, I think last year, was uh, the uh, flight of the locusts that invaded uh, South Asia and other parts of the world. And then you wrote about how Pakistan and India actually teamed up to fight this invasion. 
Uh, do you see any potential of further cooperation between South Asian nations on climate-focused projects? I mean, in the past, we had a guest, uh, Dr. Jairam, who talked about how uh, water cooperation is one of the uh, one of the areas where cooperation may occur. Uh, is there any other areas that may see cooperation? Yeah, I would agree that water cooperation is um, it really is um, one of the key um, areas of improvement of the current situation because it's it's a field that is at the moment fraught with conflict. So countries are really engaging in water wars, um, but um, it's so important that they learn to cooperate instead. Like climate change is really changing and reshuffling um, the game. Um, so yeah, I would agree that water is uh, is a main issue. But also um, one thing that I that I wrote about in the past, and I think it's, it's a topic they am very interested in, is um, um, climate science. So cooperation in climate science um, is also very important and can enable some important action on the ground. So let's imagine, let's take the Hindu-Koshimalayan regions. You have a lot of countries and you have many tensions on the ground. And what scientists need is to be able to collect data throughout this area. Because the Himalayan ecosystem as a whole is very diverse and it's a combination of um, many microclimates. So it's really important that you are able to visit these places and collect relevant data from each place, from each valley, see how they change um, with uh, difference in altitude, see how they change with like having a water source uh, or having a dry area. All of these microclimates are present um, in this span, in a relatively small span um, of the region. The problem is data on, for example, water, uh, water springs, um, precipitation, humidity soil, are all data the countries like to keep close to their chest um, for security reasons, but also for political reasons, because the information is power. And this makes research much more difficult. So imagine uh, we have a model, a, a climate model, on how to handle floods induced by you know, excessive water flow in a river. This model works really well at a global level and scientists can create this imaginary river that could be in India, could be in Nepal, or could be somewhere else in the world. And this is all good, but then in order to make it work for a local context, um, they need local data to feed into this model. There is a computer-generated image of what this, you know, of what the situation of flood situation could entail. And if they don't have data collected from the ground, there's nothing they can do to make this big and potentially very useful model work for that local context. And this is what, what's holding back the search at the moment in the area, is that countries are not talking to each other um, from this point of view. And a lot of data media are there, but they're not digitized, so they're not in a computer, they will be somewhere um, tucked away in a library, it would be somebody's master thesis, they collected a lot of data that could be potentially super useful, but again, they, like once this person graduates, they are forgotten. You have a patchwork of information, but information is not um, shared and it's not um, 
digitized in a way in a format that can be used by different actors. And I think maybe this could be a, like a less known aspect um, or potential for cooperation. Um, but I think it's very important, particularly for the Himalayan region, which is extremely vulnerable. I mean, you mentioned there how uh, politics has often stifled cooperation. And I think it's somewhat of a cruel irony that in an age where we need cooperation the most, uh, a lot of countries in the world have elected populist leaders. Um, I don't want to mention any names, but there's a few out there. Uh, I want to move on to our next question. Uh, it is understood that countries in South Asia, despite contributing marginal amounts to climate change, are some of the most vulnerable. However, of course, everyone has to play their part in combating climate change. Uh, what steps can South Asian countries uh, take in limiting environmental damage? Hmm. I would say, I mean, my, my um, the country I know best is, um, is India, because I've been living here for a while. And um, I, uh, the big part of my reporting for the newsletter also focuses on India. Um, but I can give you one example, um, which I think might apply to other countries as well, like Bangladesh, for example, or Pakistan. Um, these are countries that, that are heavily dependent on fossil fuels, coal in particular. And uh, on the other hand, they still have uh, the need to develop. So you can't ask these countries to go for Turkey like you've done for uh, you know, other richer economies. I mean, no economy is doing this perfectly well, but you know, other rich economies have more room for, uh, um, for cutting emission fast. Um, with India and other South Asian countries, this is more of a challenge and it starts, in my opinion, it starts from the ground more than from the sweetest statements that you can hear at COP or on the international UN table. Um, there has been some really meaningful research, for example, in the cold, um, about the cold belt uh, of India. There are many states, that, um, one is Jharkhand, for example, which is um, and here you tell me if this is wrong, um, and if not, we do it again. Um, but these are the two states I can remember. And they have a strong coal economy, and coal supports the local communities in many ways, not just you know, providing jobs, but also providing money that goes into the economy, so people who have those salaries can then spend them into something else. So, the task is really to transform these local economies, phasing out slowly the coal economy, but replacing it with something else. And so if you replace it with something else, you have to really know the local context and the potential of this local context to create new economies. It could be tourism, it could be conservation, it could be service economy or anything else. But obviously these are things that have to be done side by side on the ground. And at the moment, there is this disconnect between um, the national level in India and the local level in the states. And it looks like these parts of the you know, government machine are not really talking to each other. And I think uh, the problem might lie there. Uh, there's a good example in, um, in the US, there is this campaign um, carried out for the Sierra Club, it's an, it's an NGO and um, it's called Beyond Coal. And they really go to small communities in the coal belt 
and they tackle the problem one by one. So they go to a community where there's a coal power plant in a mining community and they offer alternatives until the economy is transitioned and they can close this power plant. It's not profitable and it's really highly polluting. And they've been doing so well with this granular approach that they've achieved impressive results in the US. Um, I think there's a great potential for South Asian countries to do the same as they go about um, the energy transition and if they're serious about it. And also, let's remember, fossil fuels are not a very profitable investment anymore, particularly for um, distribution companies, like power distribution companies are uh, tied to these contracts with coal providers that are not very um, are not very robust and uh, are outdated and uh, again are not profitable at all. So you know the coal economy is really leading to economic losses as well. So it doesn't make much economic sense anymore. Um, but it's just difficult to unravel the systems that are you know, so ingrained in the local and national economy. And in my opinion, a good opportunity would be to do that, uh, start from the granular level and really operate to offer these communities a good alternative so they know it is possible and they will be in turn maybe able or motivated to elect leaders that offer a valid alternative to what they have. So for the final question, we do this in every episode. Uh, we sort of end on a positive note. I mean, uh, the topic of climate change is quite heavy. And there's this whole climate anxiety thing where people are very conscious about what could happen to the planet. Uh, we try and stay somewhat optimistic. Um, so I want to give you a sort of hypothetical question. Uh, let's say that the year is 2050 and the climate problem, however much of it is sort of fixable, has been fixed and we're on the right path. Uh, how do you think we get there? What are the key steps taken by South Asian governments, corporations and other stakeholders to get to that point? And I know you just mentioned uh, uh, cutting down on fossil fuels as a major reason. Is there anything else that we could have done? I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball on that. Uh, all the problems would be solved. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> I think, uh, yeah, a just transition would be very important. It also um, empowers countries to, you know, look out for their own communities. Because at the moment, the international debate is a lot of, um, you know, oh, we've done what we can, but uh, developed countries really have this um, huge emission debt, like they, they caused much of the problem, which is absolutely true. And so they now have to pay for it. Um, but this has been, this conversation has been going on for decades now, and it hasn't really gone that far. So I think it now has to be complemented by something else. And I think nations um, that are growing, that have a young population like India, like um, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, the Himalayan countries and more, they really do have that potential to become champions of climate action. And I think that would be really key to achieve a potential you know, full energy transition or net zero. And one way to do it is to, yes, create um, a just transition within the country. Um, I think, I mean, I cover a lot of um, energy, uh, clean energy development, and I think India is definitely on the right path, but there are some um, policy loopholes 
that still um, cause some disconnect between, once again, states and central government. Central government has really good policies, uh, but the states sometimes do not implement them in a way that is functional. So all these policy gaps, I don't want to get too technical, but basically there are a number of, um, of clashes between central government and local government. And I think if these two actors cooperated more, that would be already very important. Uh, another aspect that I think I think we would see in this hypothetical scenario would be coastal protection. We talked about um, you know how dangerous it is to you know to ignore the problem with extreme weather coming from the sea. Um, and at the moment in this coast and most of South Asian coasts are really, really vulnerable and there are a lot of cities and slums and uh, you know informal settlements and clean infrastructure there right on the coast so a storm comes that's it that's destroyed and this is uh, you know an adaptation problem but also a mitigation problem because when key infrastructure is destroyed then you have to build it again and um, if power lines go down and if you know a power plant is destroyed then it's going to be an energy intensive affair to build it from scratch and bring more emissions and you know a, a community a big community in permanent state of crisis um is going to be able to make the wisest decision on how to transition to a more sustainable economic model so we have to look at these aspects as well, not only from an adaptation point of view, but also as mitigation potential. Like if we avoid crisis, if we, if we make sure that people have a good life, then we set the stage for taking bolder mitigation actions as well. So I think, um, I think yeah, like cost of protection is very important, like creating uh, natural buffer zones, um, like restoring the mangroves, for example, protecting the nature that is already there. And for you know centuries and millennia has protected the coasts and now it's been eroded. I think that would be very important as well. And then again, you know, more cooperation, what I was saying before, I think it would be very important uh, to protect the third pole. Um, the Himalaya is one of the most important ecosystems of the world and one of the most threatened is, is um, warming at very alarming rate. So even in the best case scenario, we will see some of that precious ecosystem gone. Um, I know it's a bit depressing, but um, the positive note is that we can stop this from you know, getting worse. Um, and better cooperation between states will be you know, so important. We already have a lot of scientists that are 100% committed to protecting that ecosystem, knowing it better and doing lessons on what to do. Um, the problem there is is really truly political. So I think it's like politics need to grapple with the fact that you know it's now up to us as um, as communities and, and governments to put in practice what uh, science is suggesting we do. Thank you very much for all that information, Lou. I mean, you mentioned uh, the coastal protection. Uh, we had a guest here uh, not long ago, uh, a youth activist from India, who also mentioned the same uh, mm. points about coastal, coastal protection. But 
I'd like to thank you very much for appearing on our podcast today. Uh, I know you're, there was a whole thing about time difference as well, so thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank, thank you, you so for much. everything that you've told us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rewind, a podcast by Resolve. To learn more about us and how you can get involved, please visit our website at resolve.earth. You can also follow us on social media. We are active on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at resolve underscore earth. That's resolve spelled R-I-Z-O-L-V-E underscore earth. You'll find all the links mentioned here on the show notes below. Thanks again, and see you next time.